Welcome to the Tigers History Podcast. I'm Nathan Bierma. Imagine being a teenager in 1940s Detroit, taking the streetcar to Michigan and Trumbull to watch the Tigers play at what was then called Briggs Stadium. Then imagine one day you get a phone call telling you to come down to the stadium, put on a uniform, and take the field with your heroes. This happened to Dan Dillman in 1948. Dillman worked as a bat boy in the visitors' dugout and clubhouse at Briggs Stadium from 1948 to 1950. He rubbed shoulders with some of the biggest legends in baseball, getting a less glamorous look at them behind the scenes, but never losing his sense of awe at his proximity to baseball greatness. Dillman wrote about his experiences in his captivating book, Hey Kid, A Tiger Bat Boy Remembers. Dillman went on to an academic career as longtime professor of geography at Northern Illinois University. He is active in retirement, leading study groups for the Lifelong Learning Institute at Northern Illinois, and hosting a local radio show appropriately called A Little of This and A Little of That. I spoke with Dillman by phone earlier this summer. He shared some of his fondest memories from his front row seat at Tiger Games. Dan Dillman, I've been looking forward to talking to you ever since I finished reading your book recently. Welcome. Thanks for joining me. Well, thank you for being interested. Uh, I'm always happy to talk about my book and experiences of long ago. Your Tigers career begins in the winter of 1948 with an essay contest the team holds in order to find a new Bat Boy. Yes. Uh, You submitted an essay and you followed up with the team. You weren't content after you didn't hear anything that that you would get the job or had been given a fair chance. How good was your essay and how important was your follow-up in landing the job? Uh, It seemed odd to me that they would ask for an essay considering the uh, responsibilities of a bat boy or uh, clubhouse boy, and so uh, I was a good student, and English was one of my favorite subjects, and so I I wrote a, I thought, a, a pretty good letter, but there were certainly probably hundreds of kids uh, writing letters, their own letter uh, to be Bat Boy, and so at that time, Billy Evans was the general manager of the Tigers. Uh, Billy Evans had been a um, uh, an umpire, and when he retired from that, he uh, got into administrative work with, uh, I think, various teams. But at that time, he was with the uh, Tigers as general manager, and so being a good drawer... Uh, I drew his picture from a photograph in the newspaper, and uh, that seemed to uh, get me an interview. And when I went down uh, for the interview, the fellow said, well, if you can draw this well, why would you want to be a bat boy? And I said, well, it's, it's obvious. This is what... Everybody wants to be at my age. So once you got the job, one of the first people you met in the visiting clubhouse was a man that you and everyone called Fat Frank. Who was Fat Frank, and what was your relationship like with him? Well, Frank was the clubhouse manager. The uh, Tiger Clubhouse had a uh, manager... Uh, who uh, took care of the clubhouse and of the ball players' needs. 
And in the visitors' clubhouse where I went, uh, the fellow was, um, let's say, he was less less than friendly, uh, and uh, he uh, was not exactly what I would call today the perfect boss because uh, I remember one time I was trying to to mop the floors something that I'd never done and he came over to me and I think I said in the book uh, you call that mopping the floors I know amputees who could do a better job than that so he often made nasty critical <laughs> remarks I uh, just assume not use his last name um, because uh, some people even today uh, might remember him but uh, he was kind of a gruff fellow and uh, as I said in the book immobile he would sit on his stool and eat candy bars and hot dogs and direct the boys as to what to do he ran a tight ship and encouraged you to follow along and take pride in your work and the purpose of that he says was to provide the best visiting clubhouse atmosphere in the American yes. League. And I read that and I wondered, you know, sometimes teams don't want to give the greatest comfort to their opponents. They they uh, they don't want them to be comfortable as they take the field, and there's some gamesmanship about that. But I take it there was never anything like that with Frank's approach to the visitors' clubhouse at Briggs Stadium. No. You mentioned that um, at the University of Michigan in the visitors' clubhouse for... Um, football teams that came to play in, in Ann Arbor. Uh, I believe that that visitor's clubhouse was small, uncomfortable, and painted pink. And so that's an example of what you were referring to. But uh, it, we took great pride in being the very best visitor's clubhouse because we wanted the ball players to know or to enjoy uh, coming there and to and to know that uh, we would uh, do everything that we could uh, to make their uh, stay uh, comfortable and that we would run errands and um, and do uh, other things for them that uh, would would make their stay a pleasant one. So that was always the mantra. This is the best visitor's clubhouse in the American League. And often ballplayers would tell us that. Including Ted Williams, you have a great story that I'm not going to spoil for readers um, about a rather unusual errand for an unmentionable yes. item that he... <laughs> Had you run, and he and he told you outright, yeah, this is the best clubhouse. Did did you get a lot of explicit affirmation or appreciation from players? Yes, it was usually the players who were what we would call the star players. Uh, they were the ones that gave the boys working there either as bat boys or clubhouse boys. Uh, they would give the the best tips and uh, uh, show appreciation for uh, things that were done for the players. 
With the one exception, I have a part of chapter two, I think, dedicated to this. Uh, Jerry Coleman uh, of the New York Yankees, and um, I think I said in there that uh, I spent an entire evening washing his dirty socks, uniform, his his sannies, his sanitary socks from a three-week road trip and uh, folded them, put them in his locker, and he never acknowledged that I'd done that. But, you know, I think you have to expect it. You know, that's part of that's part of uh, kids growing up and learning that not everyone's going to be uh, pleasant and uh, polite uh, f- for things that you do for them. Give us a sense of, in addition to these errands that came up, sort of your daily routine. You'd have to leave school by, I believe, noon for a 3 yes. o'clock game. What, when was school sort of the, what were some of the regular parts of your day? Well, uh, I would eat my lunch on the streetcar on the way down to Brick Stadium. The uh, At that time, the in my first year, the Tigers were only then getting uh, lights for night games. And so usually games were played in the afternoon, and we usually started at about 3 o'clock or at the very latest, 3.30. The work that had to be done before the game was then done the, the night before. Uh, in other words, I would, uh, I would. By the time I got down to the ballpark, uh, all of the work, such as shining shoes and sweeping floors and mopping floors and putting uh, new and dry uniforms into the lockers, had already been taken care of the night before. So that after a game, which would end at about 5.30 or 6, um, we would get to work. As soon as the ball players were uh, leaving the clubhouse, we would start sweeping the floors, mopping the floors, uh, putting all of their uh, wet uh, uniforms into the dryer. Uh, we would shine all of their baseball shoes uh, for the next day. And we always hated for them to be playing in the rain because that meant that the the shoes would be muddy. And um, it just took so much longer. But all of that work, cleaning the, the toilets, for example, cleaning the showers, uh, all of that work had to be done uh, when we showed up for for work the next day, and that was true for bat boys. It was true for uh, the boys who worked just in the clubhouse and uh, didn't wear a uniform for the game. Uh, so that meant that I got home at night uh, after uh, a game, a day game, probably about 10.30 or 11 o'clock, and I was riding the streetcar 
from Michigan and Trumbull back to my uh, where I live on West Grand Boulevard. So you're doing you're working long hours doing these kind of grunt jobs, a lot of drudgery, the mopping the floors, the scrubbing the toilets. At times, did you say, "Why am I doing here, doing this drudgery?" And did you have to snap yourself back and say, "I am in the Briggs Stadium clubhouse where just a select few get to go." Yes, I did, and we always thought this is we're going to make this the best place in the American League. Uh, even though we worked hard and long hours, and I still didn't have my homework done by the time I got home. So I tried to do that on the streetcar on the way back. (laughs) Yeah, I thought this must be taking a toll on your schoolwork if you're leaving school early, having your school day cut short to get to a day game, then working long hours and having to do homework at the end of all that. Yes, I've... I left at usually around noon, 11.30 to noon. I started classes of anywhere between 7.30 and 8. And so the people were, it was a large uh, high school in terms of enrollment, probably 3,000 or so, but everyone knew that you know, they, because they could, some of them could see me from the, the windows as I left. Everyone knew who I was. Even if I didn't know them, they knew that uh, somebody from their school, and then they eventually found out my name, uh, that I was getting out of school early because uh, school was still three hours more in session. But I was given a schedule without any, what they called at that time, homeroom or breaks for, you know, for you to do your homework. Uh, I just went straight through from, say, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, if I had four classes. So uh, there wasn't much rest. (laughs) Were your teachers more forgiving given the nature of your job? I wouldn't think so, no. They were forgiving in the sense that if I had said that I needed a little more time to study for an an exam uh, because we'd had a a lot of games that week and I'd been getting home really late and didn't have the opportunity to to study as much, once in a while they would give me... uh, a break and say, well, why don't you take the exam tomorrow or the next day and come in uh, after school. But I can't say that they always gave me a break. It depended upon the teacher. So this was such a unique opportunity for you to get up close with some of these living legends, Ted Williams, Joe DiMaggio. You, you mentioned so many names in the book of people that you had such immediacy to. Uh, I'm wondering if seeing them come out of the shower, out of the bathroom, you saw them in in a sense in their most diminished states or their most humble states. Did that diminish their status? Did that sort of knock them off a pedestal at all for you? Or uh, were you just enthralled by being up close and personal with them? I came to realize 
I would think, fairly early on during that first year that these guys are just like everybody else. They have a special talent. Some of them are nice. Some of them are not very pleasant. And so I would say that very early on, I realized that my heroes were not so heroic, but that didn't diminish my um, my love for the game or the fact that I had favorite players and um, because they perhaps didn't act as you might think they would. <laughs> uh, it didn't make a lot of difference. I soon began to accept that, that here, yeah, you know, they're just like other people and they'll have their their oddities and in uh, behavior and um in fact that that was helpful in learning how to better serve them because well let's take this as an example when you're a bad boy every player will have certain bats that they like to use and you have to know what those bats are, and you have to make sure that those have been put in the bat rack for the player. Uh, and you can only do that by talking to them and showing them that, that you will do what, what they want done and that they have confidence in you uh, to get it done. Um, I cannot go into this uh, for a podcast, uh, but you will remember, it, I think in the book, I was kneeling in the on-deck circle, and Dom DiMaggio was at the plate, and Johnny Pesky was the number two hitter for the Red Sox, usually, and I was kneeling there with his bat, and he, he came up, and he he was very pleased that he didn't have to carry his own bats. That I had him up there for him, and I had a uh, a bath towel so that he wouldn't uh, uh, when he kneeled down he wouldn't get his uniform uh, soiled. And he made a comment to me in a way that indicated that he was really very satisfied with the way that we were able to do this thing. In other words, to know which bats would be used and to uh, be up there and waiting in the on-deck circle for the, the hitter. If you want to know what that, what he said to me, you have to go back to the book. <laughs> it's a little bit profane. Yes, we'll leave that to our listeners' imagination and for uh, future readers to uh, to enjoy on their own. You write that one of the most intimidating duties you had to do was to retrieve the warm-up jacket from the incoming relief pitcher, and thousands of fans saw you do this and, and thought nothing of it. Uh, but this was this was a harrowing and, and terrifying task for you. Why was that? Well, for one thing, uh, the Tigers had their bat boy and in fact they had several bat boys who were famous for running from the dugout steps out to second base 
and getting the jacket from the relief pitcher. The bullpen was in center field, uh, 440 feet away from home plate, and the Tiger Bat boy would rush out there, grab that jacket without stopping, and he would arrive at second base just as the relief pitcher did. And then he would turn around and, and run back to the dugout well, when the visiting bat boy had to go out and get the jacket for the relief pitcher for the visiting team, the pressure's on to do this, if not as fast as the tiger bat boy, <laughs> at least do it well and do it and have the timing down so that you arrived at second base at the same time that the pitcher did, uh, and without stopping, grab the jacket and go back. Uh, you know, we practiced this. Uh, it wasn't it just it wasn't a spur of the moment thing. But b- before the game started, uh, I would practice uh, running from the dugout to second base and running back again. Uh, and if it was if it was raining or muddy, you were always careful about slipping and falling because that would you know there goes your applause when you slip and fall on your face. Uh, but uh, when people watch a ball game, they don't understand. I'm sure many people don't understand what goes on before the game starts. And one of these, I would call them an event in in the practice, is that the bat boys also practice as well as the ball players do. And very little is uh, left to chance because we wanted to be the best clubhouse, the best visiting clubhouse in the American League. So did you ever slip and fall, or did you have a perfect record? No, I didn't. I never slipped. I'm going to say I was lucky, (laughs) because there were times when it could have happened, but it didn't. And what I did was just slow down a bit and adjust my timing so that I could get to second base at the time the relief pitcher was coming in. One of the great contributions of your book that I really enjoyed was this diagram that you made of the visiting uh, visitors' clubhouse down to every sink and toilet and the dryer. Mm-hmm. And you marked the spot where Ted Williams would practice his swings in the clubhouse. Now, every description I've heard of the visiting clubhouse is that it was cramped. So my question is, did that ever cause any issues? Did he ever practice full-speed swings in that location, and was that ever dangerous? He used to stand over near the showers and fairly close to the sinks and the mirrors. When you look at that diagram, I have an X where he stood so that he was well away from the lockers and from any activity that was going on. He did this, I would have to say, religiously, 
because he would come into the clubhouse, he would take off his street clothes, put on a sweatshirt, his shower clogs, and he would stand in front of a mirror and say his mantra, which I say in the book, about being the best hitter in baseball. And Another thing he used to do, and I don't remember if it's in the book or not, but he used to walk around or sit in his lo- sit at his locker, squeezing a rubber ball, hard rubber ball, to give his hands and wrists greater strength. And then sometimes he would go over there by the showers and do push-ups. So he he was completely obsessed with hitting. And I said in the book, I believe, that once in batting practice, I overheard him say that, you know, that he would play for nothing if he could play in Briggs Stadium all the time because of that short porch that existed in right field. Because at the ground level, it was 325. But the second deck, the upper deck, was 10 feet closer. So that was essentially at 315, and that's about the same distance that the great, the green monster is in Boston only for right-handed hitters. And so you can imagine how power-hitting right-handed batters uh, would like to hit in Briggs Stadium uh, with that upper deck so close. It's amazing to think what his numbers would have been like had he been a Tiger with Briggs Stadium or oh yes, yeah, or oh, with they, Yankee Stadium. There were rumors of maybe a, a Williams DiMaggio trade, and those home parks would have better matched those hitters. Uh huh. I need to say that Williams was extremely annoyed that DiMaggio got the first hundred thousand dollar contract. He thought he should have received it. He did, obviously, uh, eventually get his, his money. So there was a little bit of friction between the two. Uh, none that I witnessed, but I, w- I read about it, and uh, he did not say anything about it in the clubhouse. So usually he talked about baseball and hitting, and that was one of the things that I remember that, I was able to sit on a trunk in the middle of the clubhouse and listen to Williams talk about hitting. And then when I was out on the field, uh, talked to some of the players who were who were good fielders. So I learned from the best. Absolutely. That was a Ph.D. in, in baseball with that experience. It was. It, and I didn't know it at the time. <laughs> But I remembered back, you know, later on, I thought, that was awesome. (laughs) One thing I'd like to mention is that Bob Feller and Lou Boudreau and a number of other players uh, had asked me to help them when baseballs uh, came into the clubhouse. There used to be a dozen in a box. 
for the players to sign, and then these baseballs will be sent to orphanages, to hospitals, and for public relations events. And uh, when Feller and Boudreaux found out that I could do their signatures, they often had me sign their baseballs. So if people out there on eBay have a Bob Feller baseball, it could be mine or Lou Boudreaux. But that shouldn't annoy people because that sort of thing goes on and has gone on for a long time. Uh, The players are very busy getting ready for a game usually, and they don't want to be distracted by that sort of thing of signing baseballs or autographing different things. I was going to say fans and collectors should be under no illusions, but I'm curious if you've ever seen an item at a memorabilia show or in a museum and wondered if that was actually your autograph. Well, I would know mine because it, it was not perfect. I don't mean to to uh, suggest that, but it was good, good enough for these guys. And when Boudreau asked me to do it, I asked. I said, you know, I could also make out the lineup if you wish. <laughs> that was the year they won the pennant, 1948. Uh, that was another good experience uh, because the Yankees were not winning it, and the Cleveland Indians were, and they had some kind of team. We watch a game today, and we see a ball boy positioned on the or ball girl positioned on the outfield line to catch a foul ball before a fan can lean over and get themselves in trouble by reaching too far. And I was surprised in reading your book, you said that you were given that job. You were a, I was, auditioned I did, for it. I, I think I was the first one in baseball, in, the, in major leagues, because that was in 1948. And uh, it happened because some inebriated fans would jump over the the low wall and try to get foul balls. And so they told me to sit out there in right field. And uh, I did, and that seemed to stop it. Um, but I do believe, unless someone else uh, can prove with, with a picture or other evidence uh, that they were... Th- out there before 1948. I'm going to take credit anyway. (laughs) Sure. I can't contradict it. What was the difference in your vantage point seeing the game? Did you like that better than sitting at the dugout and going to home plate? No, I I like being the dugout because in the dugout, you got to hear what was going on in the game and the strategy that they were going to be using and also the conversation let's say that the dugout would have with players on the field of the other team teasing them using profanity uh cursing them uh this sort of thing uh so that it was uh it was much more fun to to be in the dugout um and just do your job and uh there's a an incident in the book about uh, the visiting team teasing George Vico, the Detroit first baseman, a Greek fellow, who used to do the splits 
when he would catch a ball, throw on to first base. And uh, the visiting teams thought he was showboating and that that was totally unnecessary. Uh, there were certain ways of acting on the ball field, and you, you didn't do this uh, because it was thought that you were trying to show up the uh, the opposition. And so there were... There were a lot of there were players who were disliked and were teased, or when they would come up to the plate to hit, uh, they would be razzed because some players rattled more easily, and I and in pitching, some of the pitchers became rattled more easily. I'm thinking of Hal Newhouser when he was pitching, or oh, when Hal Newhouser walked on the ball field, his head moved back and forth, much like a a turkey or a chicken. And so Hal Neuhauser's nickname at that time was Turkey Neck. And when he was pitching and let's say B he's in a jam now, he's got he's got maybe one, two or maybe the bases are loaded and the visiting team starts to razz uh Neuhauser. And one of the things that they would yell at him was turkey neck and keep yelling it. And he, he would get very red in the neck and face. You could see it from the, the dugout. And this this bothered him a lot. But uh, in one of the chapters, I think it's probably in chapter three, I tell the names of ball players that never appeared or seldom appeared in the press. The media always referred to um, Bob Feller as Rapid Robert, uh, for example. But the ball players referred to him as Inky because he had he was making so much money. He incorporated himself, so he was Bob Feller Incorporated, and so they they yelled uh, Inky uh, at him from the Tiger dugout. You mentioned that the Tigers were in the process of getting lights to Briggs Stadium, which would only later be called Tiger Stadium. They were the last American League park, second to last. Of course, Wrigley Field held out to the 1980s. That first night game in June of 1948, your first year with the Tigers, uh, talk about that night. I, I remember reading about George Kell describing that night, being amazed by the light in the middle of the evening and saying it felt like daylight out there. What was your it impression did. walking into the stadium and seeing it flooded in light? Yes, it was. It was like walking from the dark into the daylight. Uh, the lights that were put in were uh, extremely bright, and at that time, I remember reading in the uh, the press that the Tigers said that they put in the best lighting system in the major leagues. I don't I can't prove that. I don't know that to be true, but it was truly awesome to walk into literally the daylight. Uh there weren't any areas of the the stadium that were in shadows and that night 
was one of the largest attendance figures that the Tigers have had. I believe there was something, well, I'm going to say that there were at least 53,000 or more there. Hal Newhouser pitched that night, uh, I believe, and the Tigers won that game four to one if memory serves. It was it was startling, and I was able to see it early before people began arriving in the, in the grandstand because I had been out on the field for batting practice, and just some of the lights were going on. And being in June, it was going to stay light, probably, oh, it probably stay light at least till eight o'clock or so uh, but uh, as the lights came on and as the sun disappeared uh, you know, people were amazed you could hear them uh, talking about it uh, in the grandstand about you know what a spectacle this was what was it like for you as a Tigers fan to walk into the visitors clubhouse especially after a game where the visitors were celebrating. And I'm thinking of, you saw Cleveland's Bob Lemon throw a no-hitter against the Tigers in 1948. You saw the Indians eliminate the Tigers in the last weekend of the season in 1950. Were you ever conflicted about walking into a clubhouse and seeing the celebration when all around you there was a stadium full of dejected Tigers fans? I have to be honest with you here. I saw that as an opportunity to get larger tips. <laughs> I, yeah, I, was, I felt bad for the Tigers, of course, but I thought, hey, uh, the guys, meaning the, the bat boys and the clubhouse boys, we're going to do all right because the, the, uh, this is a happy clubhouse and uh, we'll probably get tips from players we don't normally get. The last game of the 1948 season, the Tigers were out of it, but they beat the Indians at Briggs Stadium to force the Indians into a one-game playoff with Boston to determine who would go to the World Series, and of course the Indians won that and won the World Series, their last title. But do you remember on that last game of the season what the clubhouse was like? There, There was a feeling of, this isn't over yet. You know, we've we've come this far, and we just need one more game. Because Boudreaux goes, they go to Boston, as I remember, right? I believe so. And Boudreaux hits a home run, knocks in other runs. He has a really good game. Uh, but, no, there was, there was just a feeling, that I remember, that, you know, they they had come this far, and they weren't going... Uh, to end the season yet. And that's what happened. (laughs) One of the most dramatic moments for the Tigers from that era that I've gone back and read about that didn't involve a pennant race is George Kell's batting title in 1949. He beats out Ted Williams by, I think it was two thousandths of a point of batting average. Yeah. He's he's on deck in the bottom of the ninth, thinking he's going to have to face Bob Feller, who he didn't think he would do well against. And in front of him, Eddie Lake hits into a double play, 
and Kell's average stays where it is and he wins the batting title. Do you remember, was there awareness in the stadium at that point of what was at stake if Kell would have gotten up to bat? Maybe an awareness by the the fans that are really into uh, stats. It was difficult for me to say anything about that. Uh, I do know that um, George Kell that season struck out only 13 times. Amazing. And no person, I think, winning the batting title had struck out that set so few times since back in the teens, you know, 19-something or in the early part of the century. But uh, he seldom struck out, whereas Williams was a power hitter. And to Williams' credit, he didn't sit down. I was pleased that, that Kel won because when I was in, in high school, later on after I went back uh, to high school, I uh, was involved with the my high school baseball team, and I played third base. And so I was always... Kel was my favorite player and uh, for a number of reasons because he handled the bat so well. And because he was, I think that season he had a, a good fielding average as well. And uh, he was a clutch player. So many great names that you came in contact with. Let me ask you about Connie Mack. He, everything I read about him suggests he was this regal presence in the clubhouse and in the dugout. And yet you saw him in the latter years of his career. I read that at least in his very final years as a manager, he wasn't very connected to the game. How, how did you encounter him both as a, a regal presence um, and how connected was he as a manager as far as you could tell? All right. The, uh, let's say that the game begins at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Probably, I would say, between 2 o'clock and 2.30 Mr. Mack, as everybody referred to him, came into the clubhouse. He was not there beforehand. Uh, Before that, his brother, or excuse me, his son Earl, uh, ran the team. And two o'clock or so, the door slides open and Mr. Mack walks in, uh, in suit and tie, and hat as well and he usually walked through the clubhouse he might say something to Earl uh, and the coaches Uh, I don't remember seeing him talk to any of the players but he could have anyway the important thing is that he went out to the dugout and sat there and watched uh, the end of Tiger batting practice and fielding practice. And then when the uh, players went out uh, to the dugout, uh, then Earl went out. And during the game, he and Earl uh, ran the game. Earl becomes the bench coach, so to speak. And I was fortunate enough several times to sit next to Mr. Mack uh, and 
listen to them talking about the game. I do know that he had concern for his players, particularly the players that had been with him for a while. Uh, Pete Suter used to play second base for the athletics. Pete was a about a 250 hitter and good fielding second baseman. During one game, uh, he got one hit, and that was it. And then he popped up a time or two, and he flew out, and so, and he came back to the disgusted to the dugout and was cussing Mr. Mack said now now Peter you're too good a ball player to let emotions ruin how you play he said you'll get a couple more hits tomorrow or the next day remember stay under control and uh the ball players in the dugout seldom, if ever, swore when Mac was in the dugout. Now, I thought this was interesting because Mac had been a player himself, catcher, and uh, I'm sure in his playing days he swore too. But now, as an 80-year-old, they were showing him respect by not speaking the same way in the dugout as they would uh, if he weren't there. You write about how the knowledge you gained, you gained all this knowledge firsthand from these players and managers, how that benefited you as a coach in uh, Little League and Youth League teams that you coach, in some cases to city championships. I'm curious, did you ever think of, did you ever think I should be a pro manager or a pro scout? with all this knowledge I've gained from the experts? I did think about it from time to time, but working with the boys and literally it was a way for me to relax from my academic life because I was always in the process of doing uh, writing another ac- another paper and going to another professional meeting in order to get promoted, because when you're on the tenure track, that's what you have to do. And by being with the boys in the summertime, that was a way for me to relax a bit. And also, I wanted to be with my own sons as they uh, grew up and played baseball. And uh, my oldest, he was probably the best bunter I've ever seen among teenagers. We ran the uh, squeeze play 14 times with runner on third base, and he bunted the runner in 13 times over the years. Uh, And my youngest son was was said, I'm not saying this, but it was said to have the, the best swing in the city uh, because he was a line drive hitter and uh, usually he would play first base. Uh, but uh, no, I had thought about what you, you ask. And uh, to me, it was just a way of passing along some information and to make, make the, the kids better players. The teams that we had, not always were we the best 
did we have the best players, but we had the best teams. Uh, and I like to think that that uh, was accomplished by what I could pass along to them uh, from my experience down at Brick Stadium. Did your players put more stock in what you were saying because of the source? Because you said, hey, Ted Williams told me this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I said, no, 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 this is the way. Now, here's the way that Lou Boudreau would play this this hitter. Or here's the way that so-and-so would 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 play the outfield in this situation. And uh, what I uh, enjoyed uh, a lot was that we, I had the boys taking signals and then giving signals to the rest of the team. You know, give a signal to one on the team, one on the field, and then they'd pass the signal around to the to the rest. Um, uh, I don't know if you know, but the when the pitcher throws to catch a runner off at first base. That signal is often given from the dugout and then from the catcher to the pitcher. It's not necessarily the pitcher's decision uh, to throw. Uh, and there are other plays that take place that people probably don't understand where the origin is. It's because they've been told the signal has been given for the, for the players to do things a certain way. I think a lot of people just feel that the players go out and play, and this this shows that uh, you know they they don't know the inside of the game. It's it's a very simple game, but on the other hand, it can be very complex if it's played the right way. And people who tell me, "Oh, I don't watch baseball; it's boring," I said, "Well, if you knew what was going on." You wouldn't find it that way. You'd be looking for the signals. Uh, you'd be looking for certain strategies with runners on base, score the game in the inning. If you knew all of that and were careful and watchful, you wouldn't find it that way. You'd find it very exciting. You went back to Tiger Stadium in 1999 for one last game, and you write about how you were kind of instantly transported back to almost exactly 50 years ago when you worked there. How was the stadium different, and how much was it like stepping right back in time to that same stadium, then called Briggs Stadium, that you experienced as a teenager? Well, for one thing, the stadium, when I, when we arrived, that I saw in 1999, it had been painted white. It was not white years earlier. It, so now, at the end of the 1990s, uh, at the end of the Brig Stadium uh, era, the stadium was white with the, the Tiger logo painted on the walls around it. Uh, inside seemed to be pretty much the same as before. It was beginning to look a little run down, Maybe the maintenance wasn't as uh, well done. It wasn't taken care of as well as it had been before. Uh, it looked like an older stadium. 
uh, in need of some uh, of refurbishment. But it's I was against tearing the stadium down because I thought that it could be used for youth baseball and that there's uh, not a need to tear down both the grandstand, both tiers uh, of the grandstand and to tear down the bleachers. See, the Briggs Stadium was the only, and Tiger Stadium was the only stadium that had a double-deck bleachers. And if you look at the cover of my book, I used that photograph from home plate uh, out to uh, the bleachers. And there were very few, there was very little advertising. There was advertising now when I went back in at the end of the 90s, uh, both in terms of the scoreboard and here and there an ad on the wall. Dan, this is such a delight. The stories in this interview and the book just transport you back to that mid-20th century era at the corner of Michigan and Trumbull. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for your time today. Well, thank you for being interested and, and for listening. Dan Dillman joined me from his home near the campus of Northern Illinois University, where he taught for many years. Dillman is the author of Hey Kid, A Tiger Bat Boy Remembers. You've been listening to the Tigers History Podcast. I'm Nathan Bierma. The Tigers History Podcast is not affiliated with the Detroit Tigers or Major League Baseball. Follow us on Twitter at Tigers History and join us next time for the Tigers History Podcast. Thank you.